Would you like an opinion on a financial matter you're dealing with? Whether it's about retirement, investments, taxes, or 401ks, Scott Hansen and Pat McLean would like to help you by answering your call. To join Allworth's Money Matters, call now at 833-99-WORTH. That's 833-99-WORTH. Welcome to Allworth's Money Matters. I'm Scott Hansen. I'm Pat McLean. Glad you are with us as we talk about financial matters, both myself and my co-host here, Pat. We're both financial advisors, certified financial planner, chartered financial consultant. We spend our weekdays with people like yourself, and we broadcast our radio program on the weekends. So whether you're listening to it, maybe you're listening to terrestrial, old school radio, or you're uh, listening to a podcast, whenever it's convenient for you, we're glad you are Glad you are part of our program and um, greatly appreciate um, the fact that we have anyone that wants to listen to our podcast. Thank you. Because podcasts are kind of dime a dozen. There are lots of them. My niece came back from, I think she was in Ecuador for a period of time. And her she came back and her plan is her and her friend are going to make money doing a podcast because like, a few people thought they were funny. Oh. And so they're going to have a podcast i wish them luck i do too because we've been doing this program for 20 26 years we made exactly how much money on the podcast <laughs> right if you notice we don't sell any ads during the during the broadcast but we would if if someone wants to advertise on it trust me <laughs> we haven't really tried frankly i mean we've been doing this a long time and, and it's obviously an educational format and to be totally transparent it's been good for our business over the years yes. as a, a way for people to get to know us and a uh, way for us to. But in saying all that, practice. if you're willing to write a check and advertise well, on our podcast. Yes. yes. Uh, and if the check's large enough, we could rename the podcast. <laughs> yes. After remember you. Uh, we are our financial <laughs> advisors. <laughs> Capitalism kind of is in our DNA a little bit. So, <laughs> well, I tell you, uh, <laughs> when you look at this week, with uh, some of the, the proposed tax changes, it's a challenging time to do any tax planning this year. I spent some time yesterday with a client, and we discussed exactly these things and his financial situation. And small business owner, right, started a small business, started with nothing, grew a small business, sold it to another company, retired, now has a decent amount of money. I mean, enough that he's going to send some downstream to his children. It's like, what's happening and how do you plan for it? Well, yeah, because you take a small business owner who's nearing retirement. Let's say it's a dry cleaner someone's been running for years. Let's say the dry cleaner makes $100,000 a year. Easy enough. Right? Let's maybe it's a little bit more. Let's call it $150,000 a year. He's nearing retirement. He's thinking about selling this business. Well, right now, under current capital uh, gains tax rates, the maximum federal rate is 20%. Under what's being proposed, it's going to go to uh, 43.8%. Yes. So do you sell now? So, so maybe let's say his dry cleaner's worth $2 million. Is 40%? I mean, f- yeah. 40%. Per- so do you, this is, <laughs> so uh, all of a sudden, are we going to see a bunch of businesses rush to market? In order but to take it, how do we know that lower? it's not going to be retroactive? Some of the things that they're p- pushing right and, now, and it's happened before. Under it has Bill, happened before. Bill Clinton uh, retroactive. It's happened. Under- so you could take the small business owner, the guy who's been planning or gal who's been planning on selling that dry cleaning business for years, and you can talk about a difference in capital gains of a couple hundred thousand dollars easily. Easily. That, that add that on to what's being proposed of eliminating the stepped up basis on death. So for estate planning, that's a huge thing. Also eliminating some of the, uh, the, the ability to exchange real estate, real property with one another, having some limits on that. So yeah, if you're in that industry, if you're a developer, you're on an office complex, it's going to have a tremendous, uh, could have a tremendous, but it, the challenge is it's, it's April now. And like, how do you plan? And we know the estate tax limits are going to be re- the, the, the exemption the, amounts. Yeah, will be reduced. Oh, and, you would expect that. Well, it's going to expire anyway in a few years. Yeah, but there's, you expect that they are going to accelerate that. I would say, um, but if you if if your net worth is over five million dollars, you should absolutely um, start sitting down with a financial advisor or at least a qualified attorney and discussing some of these issues because. You should be structuring your portfolio and your net worth 
in order to, I guess, if it's retroactive, does it matter? It's too late, huh? Uh, you would, you, you certainly should enter the conversation. You need to look at all the options and be prepared for whatever is coming. Yes. Um, and I, who knows what's going to happen? Time will tell, <laughs> right? Yeah. All right. Anyway, let's uh, take some calls here. 833-99-WORTH is the number. We're talking with John. John, you're with Allworth's Money Matters. Uh, my question is about precious metals. And if you thought or if you wanted to buy uh, a certain percentage of your portfolio in precious metals, would you do uh, an ETF? Would you do gold mining stocks? Or would you do the physical metal? Uh, ETF. You would do the ETS where you just have a piece of paper saying it's there. Let why, me ask you, this. why are okay. you buying? Why are you buying this? Oh, just like ten percent of my portfolio. Oh. I'd like to. Uh, this is a, a hedge against a hedge, uh, everything again. going to hell. Oh well, well if we're good, so it, it, it's speculative. You're speculating on the price of gold. Yes. I mean, if it's if you're, very, if you're yeah. if you're saying I want it there for in, in case there's some inflation and I'm going to bet that it's going to be a pretty good hedge for inflation over that time, use the ETF. If you want to own gold because oh. you're afraid uh, our whole system of government is going to collapse and the U.S. dollar means nothing anymore, uh, and so you want to have some gold coins, and I'd have gold coins, and I would have guns, and I'm not joking there. I mean, I'd like if that's your yeah, it just depends to... on what the view is. No, I'm I'm not a prepper now. <laughs> uh, but but it's a hard question for us to answer. It's like asking me if you ask me what color Maserati would you want, and I'd say, well, I don't want a Maserati. So the color doesn't really matter to me. So the idea of taking ten percent of your portfolio and putting it in gold and silver, I think, is a silly idea over the long term. It's just pure speculation. Really? Yes, absolutely. Look at that as an asset class compared to almost any other asset class, especially well, with one that has an asset. <laughs> well, yeah. So especially yeah, I know with it's a terrible. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. Especially well, hey. as compared to the volatility compared to to other um, uh, asset classes that actually have great growth and either similar or less volatility. And you, you wouldn't, the gold and silver thing just, it makes no sense. And if, if you truly believe the world's coming to an end and gold is somehow going to be that thing, that's going to keep you alive and your neighbors, uh, you know, the apocalypse is coming to, towards them, then buy it and store it in your walls and build a bunker. Okay. Uh, but putting it right. in a, in an investment portfolio for any amount of money, is just silly. Oh, Okay. Well, I want to thank you guys for your excellent advice over the years. You're the ones that told me about 15 years ago to buy as much airtime from the state of California. And I thank you for paying your taxes to support my, uh, my retirement. Oh, uh, did you call it? You called our show 15 years ago when we gave you that advice? Yeah, yeah, 15, oh, about fifteen years All ago. Right. Yeah, and you gave us. You said if you could put your own money into it, you would. Yeah, I, but I, yeah, I still could. A, I it's still been a great would, deal. And I wouldn't put my old money into gold or silver. So there you go. Appreciate the yeah, call. Yeah, thanks, okay. John. We, All right. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks, All right. Bye. <laughs> Let's talk now with Steve. Steve, you're with Allworth's Money Matters. Hi. How are you doing? Fantastic. Well, my, my question is, um, we have three rentals right now. Two are completely paid for. One is uh, got a balance of about 105 on it. And then our primary residence is completely paid for. Um, we're contemplating selling one of the rentals just because, well, I'm, I'm 70 years old. I just don't want to do a whole lot of maintenance anymore. Not that it requires a lot of maintenance. No, I get it. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I just don't want to take that $100,000 hit in capital gains. Um, okay. Is there another way around it? Something, um, you, could give just, it to, you know. You, you could give it to charity. Oh, hey, <laughs> do you have one I could give it to? <laughs> I could give you a long list. In fact, why don't you give your phone number out right now and oh, yeah, they'll call sure. you directly. That'd be plenty. 
Well, um, we give you my social too. <laughs> Well, I mean, um, there, here's a couple no. options. You could you could move into one and convert it to your primary residence. Yeah, you got to live in that for and a while. If your goal is to yeah, die we, with as much money as possible, that would be a good option. Right. If your goal is yeah, to have quality mind. life throughout the remaining years, that might not be the best option. You could structure yeah. it as a as a uh, where you carry a note on it, and what that would do installment, is installment. But you'd have a hard time in this environment. You wouldn't want to do that. You could gift it to a relative and then they could recognize the gain or you could just sell it and recognize the gain yourself. So yeah. Those are about all the options. Or you, you can do a tenant in common. You can exchange that. You can exchange this for like kind property, but you're not, you're not. Yeah. And you, yeah. you, you, you could do a tenant in common, which is, the worst thing else, to do. which is you might as well just pay the taxes. Okay. There's there. Yeah. We, we contemplated moving into it. And then um, leaving our primary empty, it's only, you know, they're all within a 10 mile radius. Um, and then we would just lose the, the rent for two years, but it's, it would be a lot less than the hundred thousand. Well, we look, there's, but a 10 mile radius, I mean, that's everything. That's some of the nicest uh, right. cities in the world <laughs> have the biggest slums within 10 a mile. miles, half a mile. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, how much, how much, the one you want to sell, what's the value of that? The houses in the neighborhood have been selling in between 475 and five and a quarter. What were they selling for two years ago? Um, two years ago, I, I don't, probably around four. Um, so the, 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 so basically the run up in the market in the last year is paying for more of your, all of your tax liability and then some. Uh, say that one more time, please. The run-up in the real estate market, probably since the pandemic, frankly, is yeah. going to cover your entire tax bill and then some. And that is what we call a stroke of luck. <laughs> Strike yeah. while the iron is hot. Just pay the tax and move on. Take the proceeds, pay off that existing loan of $105,000 so you better cash flow on the rest of the properties. Call it a day. That's what I would do. I, yeah, there's, and I totally get it why you don't want to continue holding a rental um, forever because even when you have a property management company, it's one more thing to deal with, and it's like some point in time. Again, if your goal is to die with as much money as possible, we might make some different choices. But for most people, the the goal is is about maintaining a, a quality of life between now and the remaining the remaining days. So our advice would be pay the tax. We've seen we've lived through enough real estate cycles. And but Scott, I love how the fact that you actually took something that was completely unrelated to make him psychologically feel better about paying the taxes. What did, you, what did I take that was unrelated? Well, the, the, the home prices and the taxes have no relationship to each other. You just said that because it's gone up by $125,000, you can feel good about paying the $100,000 in taxes. Isn't that, that was, what that you was said? What I was trying to lead them to, yes. <laughs> Well, come on. Oh, I would. I agree. I, I mean, look, but that's psychology. It does. I don't like paying taxes any more than the next guy or gal. But if I have an investment that does extremely well and I have a bunch of capital gain, uh, I'm glad me. for the gain. Isn't that the object, objective of investing? Don't we invest for the gain? It doesn't bother me at all to, to pay taxes on it. Am I happy about it? No, but I'm happy that, that I you're the realizing gain. a nice gain. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's how you need to look at it sometimes realizing a nice gain. And I just remember, look, I remember before the last major real estate downturn, I'm not, it's a very different time today, but look, we'll have another real estate cycle, clearly, sometime in the future. And I just remember a lot of people during the last time, right at the peak, the last thing they want to do is pay any taxes. They, they always tend to, they would exchange it for um, their property. These, the hot thing was tenants in common. We kept telling people, no, no, don't It's do basically that. where you go into partnership with people you don't even know. And it's not even a limited partnership. It's, <laughs> you all share in the management of it. That's why the tenants in common, it, they're a terrible structure. Yeah. Anyway, Awful. appreciate the call. Wish you well. Next, we're with Tom. Tom, you're with Allworth Money Matters. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, glad you called, hey, Tom. I have a question for you about converting to uh, from an IRA, or actually I've got some investment accounts, into a Roth IRA. I prefer to convert my my traditional IRA rather than my investment accounts, but what would be the, the process or how to calculate the advantages, disadvantages 
the bulk of our 1.2 million net worth is in uh, taxable accounts, retirement accounts. Uh, so I figure I'm going to have to do something now or do something later to try to avoid some taxes, and I'd rather do it now than trying to figure it out later. What's your advice? Uh, how old are you? 57. And are you working or retired? Yes, my wife and I are both 57. We're both working. What's the family uh, income? Uh, 160 a year. And what state do you live in? Texas. And I hear these birds chirping. I know, it sounds, sounds beautiful. Nice. Is, it, is that in your <laughs> yeah, house or outside? I'm, I'm, I'm outside under the hood changing the air filter on my car. Oh. Keep going. <laughs> I'm just I'm hearing these birds chirping. Here's the challenge you run into right now. Be, you're in a fairly high... Are you either one of you going to have a pension? No. So it seems to me I've you're under the classic scenario of... And invested it in the, in the traditional IRA. Got it. So you're in, you're in the classic situation where your income is... Your taxable income is higher now than it's going to be when you're retired. Unless you plan on working until you're 70 some odd years old. Well, I do plan on working but not at the pace I'm at now and not at the yeah. income I'm at now. So the challenge of if trying to look at doing some sort of a Roth right now, you're in a fairly high tax bracket, okay. federal bracket. Yeah, and it may not make any sense for you ever to do a Roth conversion because you may need these dollars to live off of. Um, and how would you pay the taxes if you did a Roth conversion? Do you have money sitting outside of the 401k or IRA? yeah. I'm sitting on a hundred thousand in cash, but that's kind of earmarked for a home remodel here in the next three or four months. So I probably don't want to use that. I, I, and I've got another, I've got another hundred and thirty that was that's grown from a, uh, uh, it's from my mom's estate. It's so it's, a, it's it's in a, it's in a uh, what's credit what's it called an investment account. Okay, and who do you owe money to? Nobody. Got it. So here's how the tax here's the federal tax rates. These are ballpark numbers. And this is after you take a either standard deduction or itemized deduction. So it's probably worth another twenty grand there. First twenty thousand of income for married couples, no taxes. From twenty to eighty thousand, you're at twelve percent. Right. From eighty to one seventy, we're at twenty-two percent. From one seventy to three and a quarter, we're at twenty-four percent. From three and a quarter to four fifteen, we're at thirty-two percent. And then it goes up to 36%. So the point being is that when you go to retire, you can't live on thin air or social security benefits alone based upon what your income is today. So you're going to have to start drawing off those IRAs. And yes. it, 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 it may make sense for you, but it may not make sense for you to draw off them and do a Roth conversion at the same time. But for right now, as long as you're both working and you have this $160,000 a year in income, it doesn't make any sense for you to do a Roth conversion. Okay. Not riddle, at all. Riddle me this. For the okay. past three Do Do you so what years. this? Riddle me. Riddle me. Riddle me this. Okay. So the past three or so years, I've, my wife and I have been purchasing Roth IRAs rather than traditional IRAs and taking the tax advantage now, I've been purchasing, you know, funding my retirement maximum, 7000 each per year, each of us per year, into Roth IRAs. Should I continue doing that at this tax rate? Or should I take the deduction now and put it in my traditional IRA? Well, are you, uh, so uh, do you have a 401k available to you? Did I miss something? I don't. She does, but the max she can contribute is about thirty-five hundred a year. So the remaining thirty-five hundred of the seven thousand that she can contribute into a tax-favored account, that other thirty-five hundred I'm putting into a Roth with, for her. Are Are you self-employed? No, there's just no benefits. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. I'm I'm I, I'm considered a contractor. I'm a engineer. I contract. Oh well, then you can put money into a SEP if you're self-employed. So you can put I'm it in. Employed. I'm said, an employee for an engineering firm. Oh, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. No, I think you're okay doing the Roth uh, contributions. Yeah, because okay. you're right in that bubble, but you're not at a point where I would say quit doing any pre-tax and move because that would push you to the higher bracket. Even. Yes. So uh, w where you're at right now for for either because of luck or great planning, you're 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 doing everything right, and. 
the only thing you you really need to do is make sure uh, that you have enough to retire comfortably on. So has your house been paid off recently? No, we've had no debt for 12 years. So here's what I look at. So if we add up what you just showed me, right? We have about $1.45 million in investable assets. That includes $130,000 for the sale uh, of your mother's estate. No, no, and no. I, the, the one, the 1.2 includes all the cash and that's oh, network. Yeah, you don't have enough for retirement, Tom. Oh, no. No, I'm not considering retiring. Well, you're going to at some point in time, whether you consider it or not, it's going to happen. Well, I mean, I'm not considering it now. I understand. No, obviously. But even at $160,000 a year, if we go out eight, nine years, um, this may not be enough money for to retire comfortably, to replace all that income. That's just a fact. Well, and I, and I realize that. I know my, my standard of living will drop when I quit working, and I understand that. Okay, well, I'm just saying that it may it may take you some doing some calculators and planning and deciding to save a little bit more now. Whether you do it on a tax advantage basis or not is irrelevant. We would right. prefer the tax advantage basis, but if you need to save thirty or forty thousand dollars a year to get to the retirement goal, and some of that takes place in the brokerage account, so be it. But that's what my biggest concern would be is not the Roth conversion. By the way, you're doing everything right. Don't do the Roth conversion. Continue to make the Roth contributions, but you may, quite frankly, need to save thirty or forty thousand dollars a year more to get to Augment. retirement. Yep. Augment that. Yep. Okay. All righty. Thank. Good advice. Appreciate the call. Wish Thanks. you well. Thanks, guys. I love your show. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Bye. We're talking with Andrew. Andrew, you're with Allworth Money Matters. Hey guys, how are you doing today? Fantastic. So I called when I was uh, just a kid, way back in the day, starting my very first uh, savings account. And you gave me some great advice, and so I've and now you're 48. And to, <laughs> exactly, yeah, <laughs> 48, yeah. Uh, and so I figured it'd be a good time uh, to call back and get some more advice. Uh, right. So my situation is how, I, how old are you today? I'm, I'm 31. Okay. Yes, uh, 31, and uh, I'd worked a uh, nonprofit for a long time, didn't make a lot of money, and in the last couple of years have gone full-time freelance, um, and it's been great. Uh, and so I had had a Roth IRA that I've contributed some to, um, but in the past two years have gone through the Rupert's business and ended up with six figures in non-budgeted income uh, that's kind of right now just sitting somewhere. Uh, and so I want to make sure that I can get that money now that I feel secure in actually being able to run my business and take care of myself somewhere that can continue to make money in the long run. Um, and just needed advice in general about like suddenly having money and having no idea what to do with it. And have you been, have you been saving into an IRA on an annual basis the last number of years? Uh, so I've uh, I opened a Roth IRA with you guys about oh. two years ago, I believe, and so I have it maxed out for the three years that I could contribute. And what do you hope to accomplish financially in the next few years? I mean, do you want to own a house? Do you want to? Yeah. So um, own uh, yes, like owning a house, and I think that my my real concern is setting up for retirement. I mean, looking at a, a, a long term of just kind of safety, I put some money into the stock market when everything crashed. And so I've made some short term money there, but I don't really have much set up for uh, a long term. You have you know, no, 20, you have no employees. Of, no, just me. So you can, well, you can uh, be, if you do this before you file your income taxes for 2020, you can contribute to a, a SEP IRA, which can allow you to contribute to about 15% of your last year's um, income, uh, which okay. would certainly be a good option for you. And then uh, for 2021, you can set up what's called a full a, a solo K or a unique. Typically, solo K is what they're – and this is like a 401K for just an individual. It, there's almost no administration. You don't have to file any extra tax returns. It's really simple. But you can you can funnel about twenty five percent of your income, um, actually even a little, little bit more than that, um, depending on how you structure it, into that that sort of thing. So you can put okay, quite a fantastic. bit to, towards your retirement. That those are the two things that I would be looking at. 
Yeah, yeah. I had talked to and was looking at switching over from an LLC to an S corp so I could start putting into a four hundred one k and matching. Uh, but it sounds like a, a solo I don't k. Think, or even a k I don't think I don't think you need to switch to an S corp um, for a solo. Yeah, k. Yeah, you don't have to switch to an S corp. It doesn't matter. Cool. Then that sounds. As long as you don't, don't have employees. Once you have employees. Once you have employees, then then you can't use that anymore. Then you got to do something different. Yeah. No. Just contractors. Yeah. Easy. Yeah, that's what I do. You can funnel a lot of money awesome. there, and Easy. you get a good, just good tax cool. break for you. Easy. All right. Perfect. Thank Glad you so you much. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Yep. Bye. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. Can't get enough of Allworth's Money Matters? Visit allworthfinancial.com slash radio to listen to the Money Matters podcast. Welcome back to Allworth's Money Matters. Scott Hansen here. Pat McLean. And, uh, oh, by the way, we're going to have Andy Stout here uh, shortly. Andy's our chief investment officer uh, at Allworth, and he'll talk about what's happening with the markets and all that kind of stuff. But, but before let's uh, continue on with calls and we're talking with Richard, Richard, you're with Allworth's money matters. Hi, frequent long-time listener. Good. Even back to the Hansel McLean run for the hungry. Oh, Oh, run to feed the time. hungry. This long is a, yeah, this is a run and um, started anyway, long time run that we yeah, well, well, basically to, to me it was walk. It was walk for the hungry. Yes. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> it, for the rest of the listeners, uh, it was with our involvement with the Sacramento food bank in family services. And we would host sponsor a run that took place in Sacramento every Thanksgiving. And we had, I think 20,000 people, a lot of people would show up and it was to raise money for the Sacramento yeah. food bank. But thank you for uh, participating in that. And thanks for calling our show. What can we do for you? Actually, I have a question about uh, costs, the true cost of investing with a, a money manager, because they all talk about their, you know, their fees, but there's also an intrinsic fee with the instruments that they put you into. Correct. Yes. And one of the things I found is like, it looks like mostly I've been with Baird and now with Fidelity. Yeah, you know, they're mostly investing in mutual funds or some exchange traded funds. So we have the you know, cost involved with that. So how do you figure out? Yeah, well, you could, I mean, you could, I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's software programs that can pull, give that information in an instant to these advisors. So, I mean, you could ask, simply ask your advisor, like, Hey, what's the internal costs on these funds? And they should be able to look it up instantly and, 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 and pull that number out. You know, ETFs are almost free anymore. I mean, you're talking about two one hundredths of a percent. I mean, it's uh it's uh, those are almost free. So, but it's interesting. You mentioned two firms. You mentioned Baird and Fidelity, and you're using them both right now. No, no, I I, I left Baird because they uh, their their fees were higher, and then when I didn't meet a certain mutual a certain level because of something happened, they actually the fees actually kind of went up, and it seemed kind of high relative to what I'd oh got experienced. it. Got it. So it's interesting if you look at your. And we're not we're not saying anything positive nor negative about but Baird. So. If you look at your Fidelity account, do you find quite a bit of Fidelity uh, mutual funds in your Fidelity account? Right, but some of them are pretty low fees, you know, even the low in Vanguard. And are you are you paying an advisory fee as well? Yes. And, See, it's uh, a, there's a. I mean, that's a. It's they're conflicted. A, a total conflict there, right? Right. And so I mean, they, look, we do we do business with Fidelity. We, we do business with a lot of the big companies. We custody some of our assets with a division of Fidelity. But the challenge when you have an investment advisor that is charging you a fee to be a fiduciary to act in your best interest, and then they also have their own products that are putting you in, in inside your portfolio. It's like there's that internal. No, no matter how great of job they they're gonna they they intend to do for you and how strong their ethics are, they've still have this conflict. Yeah. Right. A well, bias. Actually, they, they, they do kick back some, you know, they, they make this obvious too. They do kick back some, some of that back to the, you know, to the investor as well. Oh, so they have an offset on some of these funds. Yes. Yes. They credit you. Oh, that's interesting. The other reason I also went with Fidelity is because my, my 401k and my wife's 403b were with Fidelity already. 
So it's kind of a pain in the ass when you're trying to figure out what your total worth is. You got to go to multiple <laughs> websites. I tend to be lazy, so kind of <laughs> well, it's good to know yourself. <laughs> it's good to know yourself. So your question is what? Well, in terms of you know, figuring out what my total, what my actual total cost is, yeah. the reason is, is uh, I also my my favorite journal is Consumer Reports, mm-hmm. and they also you know talk about. Well, this is true in general. You know, most investors or most invest, you know investing companies they tend to regress to the mean. You go find someone over a five-year period is going to look great, but you don't know necessarily they're going to be great in the next five-year period. That's right. So assuming, and the if they are, maybe it's just pure luck. Exactly, or random chance. Yes. So, you know, assuming that most invest you know, investment companies investors are going to tend to be about the same. You know. If you minimize costs, then you'll do better, especially if you have a you know a retirement window. Yeah. So if if your financial advisor, if your your financial advisor is purely providing investments, cost is a huge factor. If it's yeah. if it's overall uh, wealth management, financial planning, where there's tax guidance, state planning issues, all those other things, uh, sequence of uh, of distributions, then it's a completely different story. Number one, and number two. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, we're conflicted because we are professional investment advisors. And we believe that there's value in what we do. If you look at the studies sh- that show how individual investors do on their own, they do, oh, they do subs- much worse. Do, do much worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they obviously talk about, you know, if you miss like the 10 best days of the market, even over a 10-year period, you're going to be. So, so I mean, so. What is your question for? So the, 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 I think we answered this question. So if you want to yeah. actually know, so yours, yours is a little bit difficult because what happens is I assume that they're if rebating. In fact, if in fact, that's the way it's happening. If they're rebating uh, any of the fees. So let's just say one mutual fund charges a half a percent, but they really think they should only charge a quarter percent and they rebate the fees to you. Then you take that net number and you use that in order to compare so if you if you sent us your portfolio today, we could tell you exactly how much the internal fees are on the media. Should your, your as, advisor at Fidelity should, should be able to do or any decent advisor? You take all because of about three minutes. Yeah, it's simple. Okay. And they could actually give it to you in a weighted average, is what you're interested in, and an overall dollar cost. Yeah. And then and you if, can and compare if you it. find that you're not getting value. For the cost, I mean, that's what it really comes down to, right? I mean, it's it, whether it's it's enriching your life or not, and if it's not enriching your life, then you've got to question that relationship and the fee. No, I have to say they've, they've been doing okay. I mean, Baird it was a smaller it was a smaller uh, interface, yeah. so I'd have more access to my investment advisors. But Fidelity, it's a little bit harder. But I mean, I have my local guy, and then I have their guy out in Utah who does more manage the actual investments that Fidelity does, or Passes that on to me. Got it. All and, right. And, and, and by the way, this isn't. This is Richard's opinion of these two uh, firms, yeah, yeah. Baird and Fidelity. <laughs> yeah. We have no opinion one way or the other. Actually, I do have an opinion. I'm just not going to share it. Although the, the the reality that the conflicts do exist on both those platforms. Um, anytime there, your work. Anytime you have an investment advisor, investment advisor relationship. And that firm manufactures their own products, unless it's just pure index, because they're not actually managed. If they manufacture their own products, there's always they, conflict. Yeah, then they they might favor their own products because is it is it because it's in your best interest, or it's because in their best interest, or they think oh it's going to be good for you anyway, and it's going to be good for us, or it's a conflict. But but it can be. But I shop at Costco. In fact, my, my wife has her own parking spot there. They Kirkland brand is um, we just buy Kirkland brand. You see Kirkland brand, you buy Kirkland brand because you know it's similar and probably less expensive than the name brand. It's a little different when you're buying. First of all, you're making the choices on your own. That's correct, right? That's right. I don't have a, a per, personal shopper at Costco. Uh, if you had a person, and by the way, we appreciate your call. If you had a personal shopper at Costco and they and you went to pick up your basket and it was you had ordered Kraft macaroni and cheese and you got Kirkland macaroni and cheese mm-hmm. you would think first thing I'd think is you're not 12 anymore why are you eating macaroni <laughs> and cheese <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing I, I think, and the second with, thing with hot dogs, with the hot, you get the Costco hot dog and the mac and cheese, very nutritious meal, right? Because I'm not 12 anymore. I've moved on. 
Um, but Fair. your point is well taken, which is the manufacturer. You've got someone acting as a fiduciary selling in their own manufactured goods. Um, point well taken. Yeah. So. Uh, poor analogy on my part. Yeah. But absolutely. I always like talking about Costco. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> I don't like going there personally. My wife asked me if I wanted to go yesterday. And? I said no. I don't like going in the store. I don't like shopping most places. Yeah. But Costco, it, I love people. Just not too many at once, right? <laughs> and that's what you go to Costco. And regardless of how crowded or non-crowded it is, the line is pretty much the same because they just keep shutting down the checkout registers. <laughs> so there's like three open. You're there early in the morning and think you're going to beat the line. You're still the line there. This is line. It's just going to be line. They learned that from Disneyland, how to manage the line. That's lines. why I don't go to Disneyland. Oh, I know. It's not the happy place for me. Anyway, well, let's... Uh, oh, we're going to have Andy Stout join us. Andy is our chief investment officer at Allworth. And um, maybe Andy can help make some help us make some sense of what's going on with the market. So, Andy, thanks for joining us on uh, Allworth's Money Matters here. Thanks for having me. And Andy, are you working out of your home? It sounds like it. Yes, yeah, so working out of the home office out here <laughs> in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, our our industry is one of the last. I mean, it's still very much uh, remote. Yes, because um, it can be. Because it can be. I mean, that's essentially. Yeah. I, mean, I guess technically we're we're an essential business, so we could say everyone needs to come in. But most of our industry is like, look, if you can work remotely until this thing dies down, let's let's work remotely. And some of the clients come in and visit with the advisors in the office, and some just do it via Zoom. I think mostly so, it's been via. And anyway, enough about that, Andy. Let's talk about this craziness that we're in right now, in terms of the markets and the bitcoins and the reddits and the. Uh, I had a client tell me the other day that they've owned Bed Bath & Beyond in their portfolio for years, and it just soared one day because it was a post on Reddit, and he sold it, and he said, I never imagined I'd make so much money on, on this company. He said it had nothing to do with his investment prowess. It just He was lucky enough to own something that Reddit was hyping. So can you give us kind of a view on what you're thinking yeah. around these markets? Well, we're thinking about Reddit and everything that's going on there with GameStop, that Bath and Beyond. A lot of that is, I've gotten a lot of questions from people saying, how do we handle this risk? I mean, we're seeing all this extra volatility because of everything, you know, Reddit message boards and things like that. My thought is, it's really nothing new. Volatility is normal. Market turbulence is normal. This is just a new a catalyst for it. It's a new source of volatility. The overall picture is still the same. Markets are volatile. That's the cost for investing. If you want to get prepared for retirement and you want to enjoy your retirement, you need to be invested. And there's going to be some bumps along the way. And this is just one of the bumps. But didn't it seem strange that, I mean, it feels like the old pump and dump schemes that you years ago when you get oh, yeah. a bunch of people together and then all, hey, Boiler Room, the movie yeah. Boiler Room. I don't think I ever saw that yep. one. But it's, it's the same. I mean, like it's it, it seems like a lot of these people don't even believe in the companies that they're behind or the whatever the investment they're behind and just trying to run it up in value. No, absolutely. And you got to think the SEC is going to be stepping in. I'm, I know they're already looking at it very closely. The question is, what can they do to step in and limit it if they do feel it's some sort of manipulation? Okay. In, along, along the lines of the SEC, Securities Exchange Commission, can you talk about the SPACs, the Special Perks uh, purpose acquisition companies and why they're so good for most investors well we know they're not if you've if you listen to our podcast or show at any length of time you know how we feel about them but isn't aren't they just trying to do an end to run around disclosure in order to raise money <laughs> um and what do you think the sec is going to do about that if anything well they've already started to look into it so it's back is a you know special uh, purpose acquisition uh, company. So what they're trying to do, obviously, get um, the, the law, they're trying to do a workaround to get companies to go public a lot quicker. Uh, and think about the disclosures; they're just skirting it all, right? There's a lot of disclosures when a company ultimately wants to do an IPO or initial public offering. But if you do it through a SPAC, there's hardly any requirements. But the government's already stepping in on this. You did see a record amount of SPACs uh, and, through the first three months of the year. Andy, it Andy, Andy, a halt in April. Andy, I'm sorry to interrupt, but can you explain to the listeners what a SPAC is, what the mechanism to, to do this, and maybe some of the celebrities that have gotten behind them? <laughs> 
Yeah. So basically, again, it stands for a special purpose acquisition company. And what, what they do is they raise money. So just like a normal company would do an IPO or initial public offering to raise money, a SPAC will also do an IPO. Uh, and what they're doing is they're, they get these operating companies involved that they're going to merge with. And the SPAC is already public. And because the SPAC is already public, it'll merge with this operating company. And then as the as it's publicly traded, the listed company in lieu of the SPAC essentially uh, becomes public. And yeah, there's you've seen a, a few different celebrities it's just, involved. It's just uh, an end around, right? It's like Congress Congress changed the rules to make it good. Uh, Sarbanes Oxley years ago made it much more cum- cumbersome to become public. So these attorneys have come it, up it, with another way to hey, here's a way to. End up as a publicly traded company without having to go through the rigmarole, and and the reason they're allowed to go public and actually raise money is because they say when they're raising the hundred million, two hundred, five hundred million dollars, we don't know what we're going to do with this money, but trust us, we're going to do good, we're going to do well. <laughs> so you just give it to us, and we're not going to actually promise you anything. We're not going to say anything. You're just going to give us this money blindly. And trust us that we're going to go out and find the right operating company to merge with and then use your money wisely. And the reason these have become so popular is that the backers of them typically take anywhere between 10 and 20% of these shares as the, the payment for putting these together. Um, and so massive. Uh, uh, so what's really happening is that the shareholders of the SPAC are actually giving a portion of their money to the operators for putting this little a huge portion scheme together. I so. mean, you got to figure the returns got to be ten to twenty percent before they break even. Yes, before they even get over the right? top. Yeah, that's the. I mean, it's just uh, so. So we talked so why a little. Why wouldn't we trust them? We have we have a Rod. We have Serena, uh, Shaq. They're backing them. So of course I don't blame them. Where you should put your money. Yeah, I mean, these guys, I mean, I don't know how they get by with the little money they have now. Um, they should actually do SPACs. Yeah, look, I don't. But it's not. It Look, the, the, the people that build the SPACs actually know that they sell better if you uh, put a, a celebrity right. on title. Let's move so let's, go, the let's move back to the SPAC. So with all, the this, SPAC. with all this stimulus, right? So we, Andy, if you think, you know, what 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 Congress has been doing the last year, what the Fed Federal Reserve mm-hmm. has been up to, then with what's happened already this year, and then what was announced just this week with some potential uh, yet more programs to throw more money at people. Uh, are you worried about inflation yet? You know, inflation is a concern. So yeah, there's trillions of dollars of stimulus with the uh, two point one trillion CARES Act last year, nine hundred billion in December. 1.9 trillion in mid-March. Now, uh, President Biden has rolled out a couple weeks ago the a 2.25 trillion infrastructure package, and then uh, we got another 1.9 trillion, something like that. What I, I call soft infrastructure, which is spending for education and childcare. So that's a lot of money flooding into the economy. And the question is, what about inflation? I think it's a risk, and I think what we see is that it's a manageable risk. We're probably going to see the highest inflation numbers that we've seen in years, in all honesty, when we look at a year-over-year number. Part of that's because what was going on this time last year? Well, the economy was in a free fall. It was collapsed. So, of course, we're going to see higher prices. Uh, So the year-over-year number will look higher than, I think, what inflation really, really is. But when we get past the next few months, the year-over-year number should, in theory, go down. I think there's four reasons that inflation uh, is manageable and will come down from some levels we're seeing in the next few months. Uh, one is workplace technological efficiency. I mean, this, how we're able to operate today at very low cost from a technology standpoint without adding any extra infrastructure, it's pretty impressive. Uh, second reason is a lack of deglobalization. In other words, we're not really bringing jobs back to the United States as much as we have been. So that that kind of uh, pressure is dissipating a little bit. A third one, and this one's more important, is demographics. When we think about inflation and longer-term demographics matter a lot. The birth replacement ratio is 2.1 births per woman. In the U.S., it's 1.8 right now. Wow. That puts a cap on population growth. That puts a cap on economic growth. And that puts a cap on inflation. 
And lastly, and this is also really important, as we reopen, yes, we're going to see some wage inflation, more and more people getting jobs. I mean, we'll, we'll get the jobs report next week. Economists are expecting 900,000 new jobs or thereabouts. And the thing is, when you think about all these jobs being added, you think there's going to be some wage inflation, people demanding higher wages. But let's look at the industries. This is happening mostly in the leisure and hospitality industry, restaurants, uh, department yeah. stores. Those workers aren't going to be able to demand higher wages. The employer will just say, okay, you want this? Uh, let's go to the next person in line. And they'll just go with it from there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, though, when you've got – I mean, he, uh, there's a few factors that I see why I expect inflation in the short term. One is the supply chain disruption. We've read about, like, the, oh, yeah. the microchips, the shortage there. Well, if you're if you're in a business and you need a product – you need a, some small part, you'll pay what you need to pay to get – so you can finish manufacturing what you need to manufacture, right? And, and so yep. supply and demand, you're going to see price increases there. And then I think also when you've got so many people – like 16, 18 million people, whatever the number is we've heard, uh, that are people that were in the workforce that are not today in large part because of the uh, extended and enhanced unemployment benefits. Like it's, it, they're, they're going to lose money if they go get a, to go get a job. I mean, the only way to get those people off the couch is to, is to offer them more money than they're going to get sitting home. Significantly more. Well, it's the craziest the, policy. Uh, well, the unemployment insurance claims right now that extra $300, which is your emergency uh, relief, if you will, that's going to expire mid-September. We're probably still we're just beginning underway. So that will eventually drop off, although I've heard rumors where they want to make things a little bit more permanent there, which would clearly, to your point, you know, encourage someone to not work. Yes. You know, we, we don't want that. That's just not a good policy overall. But, and yeah, supply chain – I think that does cause some short-term bliss. I mean, we had the Suez Canal shut down for a few weeks, and there's still ripple effects from that. You already mentioned the microchip shortages. So that's going to put some pressure on corporate profits to a degree in terms of uh, hurting margins somewhat. So that's, an that's another risk out there that I'm watching. You mentioned inflation as risk. I'm also watching any sort of margin pressure. And, and what do you I mean? There's so, people that they don't make as much profit. Yeah, Companies so, don't make as much profit. So uh, we talked a little bit about legislation and unemployment. What do you think would happen if capital gains taxes went up significantly? Would it, I mean, would it slow growth? Would it change how people manage and what, money? And how it'll impact the stock market? I think you could see a short-term bliss and short-term selling on the stocks, but nothing long-term. We've had stock uh, market reactions to capital gains raises before, and those reactions were non-existent. Uh, specifically, if you look at the last three capital gains tax hikes, uh, 2013, 87, and 79, I believe is what it was. You saw positive returns three months later after each of those went into effect. So I'm not really too concerned. Now, to be fair, those capital gain hikes were smaller than what's been floated out by the Biden administration, uh, where he said, talking about you know 20% to his initial proposal that he floated out there, a whopping 39.6. So that's a very big increase. And what I think you could see is I think you, it could encourage a, I mean, also a, a lack of disinvestment. And I think it, the ironic thing is, Scott, and Pat, I think it could actually result in lower revenue for the government because people aren't going to sell as much. So they're, they're going to be, the IRS is going to be collecting less taxes. Well, so I, mean, the, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I, I was having this conversation with somebody recently, like I said, in particular, if you live in a high tax state, now we're over 50%. Like, so you take a business person, someone's got an idea, they want to create a business. If they're successful, the government, government gets the majority of it. They keep a minority of it. If they're unsuccessful, they're out. No one's bailing them out. No one's helping them make up right. those losses. So, like the higher the tax get, it just it 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 there's less and less reward there. There's less and less uh, innovation, entrepreneurship. That Andy, we've yeah. only got a couple minutes left, but I did want to ask you, um, how do you follow a disciplined investment strategy in these in markets the <laughs> where they just keep going up every and asset. up and up and There's almost like every asset class. Well, the thing is, you got to have a plan ahead of time. Because if you don't have a plan before something happens, all of a sudden you're running around like a chicken cut with its head cut off because you don't know what to do. And what inevitably will happen is your emotions will take over and you're going to make a really, really bad decision. 
when we think about, you mentioned it earlier in the show, you know, investors, individual investors doing, you know, not not earning as much money as what a professional might. That's because the professionals typically have a plan already. If this happens, here's what we're going to do. Right. So, so and but, we have those plans here. In, in saying that, is it rebalancing the portfolio, keeping your eye on risk, and yep. what what does that mean? And by the way, we've been using this analogy: chicken with its head cut off. But I don't think most people today have actually ever seen a a chicken run around with its head cut I off. Have. I have. We had chickens as a so kid. Did I, so did I. But they go yeah, ring their neck. Yeah, but this 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 show plays in New York City and in Boston. I don't. I, we're going to move on to different analogies. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, let me know when you come up with one. Like okay. To All right. So tell us uh, real quickly. We've got about a minute left. Does it yeah. does it mean rebalancing the portfolios on a regular basis? What does it mean to be disciplined? I think it's rebalancing when it's smart to rebalance. We look at, say, an investor based on their financial plan needs to have a certain amount of stock exposure. Let's just say 60% stocks and 40% bonds. So your typical 60-40 portfolio to help them meet their retirement goals. What we'll look at specifically is how far that their allocation deviates from that 60-40 that they need. So if it gets up to 65-35, we're going to reduce risk or maybe sell some stocks and buy some bonds to get back to 60-40. If it goes down on the equity exposure to 55 stocks, 45 bonds, then we'll go ahead and buy some equities. So this was actually very beneficial. Last year, we employed that strategy and really stuck to our guns. And it was beneficial for our clients because what we ultimately ended up doing was buying low and selling high. That's the key. When you don't have a plan in place, what you're going to do is buy high and sell low because your emotions will take over and you're going to be greedy at market tops and you're going to be fearful at market bottoms, which is the exact wrong thing to do. Which is why so many investors uh, underperform the broad indexes. So, Andy, hey, so much appreciate you joining us today and taking a little time out of your busy schedule as their chief investment officer at Allworth Financial. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, just want to let you know we've got a great uh, featured article on our website, Four Reasons to Avoid Annuities. And if you're someone thinking about someone's pitching you one or something, you want to learn, that's a great place to do it, allworthfinancial.com. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll see you next week. This has been Allworth's Money Matters. This program has been brought to you by Allworth Financial, a registered investment advisory firm. Any ideas presented during this program are not intended to provide specific financial advice. You should consult your own financial advisor, tax consultant, or estate planning attorney to conduct your own due diligence.